Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Julian Morgans, and you're listening to What It Was Like. The show that asks people who have lived through big, dramatic events what it was like. Hey, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to your family, to anyone that you care about. I love this time of year. I think we all do. And to celebrate, I'm going to give you a really delicious... Uh, Christmassy-themed true crime story. Um, actually, maybe calling it delicious is a little tacky because people could have died, but but it's definitely a true crime story. And it's one that I think has really fallen through the cracks. Like, people don't talk about this story uh, ever, really. Um, I only heard about this story very recently via a podcast, and we'll get to that, but it's a crazy one. It's a really wild story. It involves three bombings across New South Wales, all targeting Woolworth supermarkets um, in the lead up to Christmas of 1980. Um, and then the story ends with this really weird, like underwater um, ransom, like money exchange in the Sydney Harbour. Uh, we'll get to that as well. Um, too much preamble. Let's just get to the story. All right. So it's December 17, 1980, when a bomb explodes in a Woolworth store in Warilla. And Warilla is a southern suburb of Wollongong. And it's about 3 a.m. No one's around. There's a security guard and a cleaner in the building. And the security guard later told police that he he heard someone on the roof. Like there was like a thud, thud, thud kind of sound as though someone was running away. And then suddenly there was this almighty explosion that tore through the store. And it's thought that a stick of gelignite was lowered in through an air vent in the roof. And then it blew out all the front windows, and tore a hole through the ceiling. Uh, The security guard suffered minor injuries, but he was okay. Now, this happened in a regional area. It it wasn't a huge, as I said, no one died, so so it didn't receive much news pickup. But then, just two days later, the same thing happened again. 
This time, another stick of gelignite went off in a Woolies in Maitland, which is a town outside of Newcastle. And again, it was at night, no one was killed, but the explosion shattered shop windows all along Maitland's main street, and it caused a fire. Um, it was a huge fire, actually. I think the, the Woolies building at that time was in this sort of annex, and the, the whole annex had to be raised after the fire. Um, it cost about $300,000, which in that time was a lot of money. So now suddenly there'd been two bombs in two New South Wales Woolies stores over 48 hours, and now people took notice. This story was in the news and it was all over the newspaper headlines. Although at this point, nothing was known about who was doing this or why they were doing it. As the Daily Mirror reported, detectives are puzzled about a motive for the attacks as there has been no threats or demands on the stores. That changed on December 22nd when a letter arrived at Woolworth's head office in Sydney. And the letter was written in uh, like old school crime font, like, like on a typewriter. And, and it read, This week, we exploded two devices in two separate areas of New South Wales. They were both detonated in the early hours of the morning to demonstrate our ability with explosives and your vulnerability. There will be no further nighttime exercises. If it is necessary for us to bring more pressure to bear upon your company, we intend to place explosives in your stores which will explode during peak shopping hours. The letter then recommended that Woolworths management keep this all in the lowdown, keep the police out of it, and simply cough up a ransom. It read, We demand $500,000 in used unmarked $20 notes, $250,000 in 10 50-ounce gold bullion bars, $250,000 in loose diamonds of one carat or greater, and any foolishness regarding the true value of the gold and diamonds will result in great embarrassment to the people we know are the decision makers of our demands. The letter finished by recommending that Woolworths management take them seriously and that further details would be forthcoming. But first, there'd be another bomb. And this last bit about another bomb, it, it wasn't an empty threat. Bomb number three came on Christmas Eve, and this time it targeted Woolworths Central, like their flagship store in the middle of Sydney. And it was about three in the afternoon, and Woolworths, uh, it's a its a 10-story flagship store near the town hall, um, and it was packed. These days we know of Woolworths as a straight supermarket, but, but back in 1980 it was a bit more like a, I don't know, like maybe a Myers. Um, they sold everything from clothes to toys to, to white goods. And, and basically, you could do your entire Christmas shopping there, which is what thousands of people were doing. So in the building, the first few floors were retail, and then uh, Woolworths had their company headquarters up on the top couple of floors. And the building is actually still there today. Anyway, what happened is that the secretary to the company's chairman, a woman named Leonie McKinley, got a phone call at her desk, and she picked it up. And on the end was a voice with like kind of a bit of a fake Italian accent. And the, and the voice said, this is Mr. Dunmore. I want you to clear the George and Park Street store in 10 minutes and you had better do it. Click. And he hung up. And you can kind of imagine the gravity of that moment. Just hanging up, if you're a Leonie and you're just at your desk and it's Christmas Eve and you can kind of hear the, the murmur of, of voices downstairs in the store downstairs like there's a couple of thousand people in this building and you suddenly realize that you've got 10 minutes it's per it's on your shoulders you have a personal responsibility to clear this store otherwise people are probably going to die i mean that's a that's a big moment but uh leonie she swung into action 
She rushed to the Woolworths general manager and they sounded an alarm over the PA and through the loudspeakers, um, they announced that everyone had to get out now. Then Leonie grabbed her handbag and, and she left. Now, meanwhile, downstairs, a few blocks away, there was a young police officer named Alan Duncan and he was in his patrol car. And Alan and his colleague got the call to come help with the evacuation and to look for a bomb. And so over the shortwave radio, they confirmed that they were on their way. Alan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. So maybe let's start with, this is, uh, this is 1980. How old were you when this was happening? I was, I was 25, so I wasn't a kid, but um, at the same time, I'd I'd, uh, I was only, I'd only been in the police for one year and two weeks at that stage. And you received the call to come to Woolies and search for a bomb. Tell me about that. When we arrived, um, because that the uh, Woolworths management, and to their credit, they immediately started evacuating the shop before we even arrived. Um, so when we got there... Most of the shoppers were all standing out the front of the shop waiting to be able to get back in again. Okay, so you're there to look for a bomb. And I, I, I have no idea how you'd do that. I mean, uh, you've got a 10-storey building. Um, you know that they were given 10 minutes and it's already probably caught a past or something since, since then. So, so how do you search the building? For a start, you, it's a cursory check. Um, and it's really just a quick run around, and I, I mean that it was purely um, having trying to cover as much floor area as you could on each floor, and looking for something that was unusual or out of the ordinary. Were you nervous? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. Yes, I was. This image seems kind of weird to me. Like you're you're in this pretty Christmassy, uh, tinselly store um, amongst the toys, and you're searching around for a for a bomb. Um, more like um, were Christmas carols uh, playing on the speaker? Yes, from recollection. Yeah, and outside, obviously, the town hall is right opposite, and it was all festooned with Christmas lights and a big Christmas tree, and all of all of Woolworths was all done out for Christmas. I don't suppose you remember a particular carol playing, do you? No, I don't. It, it is very unusual and um, it, it, it was, as you said, it, it's a macabre sort of feeling because you, you had all this cheerful music in the background and yet everybody was getting herded out and um, upset by <laughs> what was about to happen. Okay, and, and what did happen? Well, when we arrived, we started from the top floor and searched each floor and then um, and just continued on down uh, until we got to the ground floor. As we got fairly close to the, the front door, um, all of a sudden there was this almighty explosion, um, which was to my right. Um, I was facing towards Town Hall. And, um, and to my right, there was this almighty explosion and the, um, the ceiling and the wall started to come down. And, of course, we covered our heads and then raced, raced to the, uh, the glass doors at the front and tried to make our way outside. Did it feel like... And I guess when I'm asking this question, I'm imagining... I'm remembering, like, the, the movies that I've seen 
that involve bombs going off, like maybe like I don't know, Hurt Locker or something, um, and time slows down and everyone's like, um, I don't know. Did it? Did it kind of feel like that? Yes, yes, it was um, very much so. It was. Um, um, I've experienced other explosions since, and um, I'm still. It still amazes me that the first um, microsecond that it, it happens, it's a shock. But then after that, it's sort of a uh, something that you get used to. Okay, and tell me about the the ringing in your ear, because I know um, the explosion damaged your eardrum. It did, and um, and I'm still suffering from it. I've um, I've got tinnitus ever since from that. So now I have a constant sound like um, cicadas and high ringing sounds in my in my left ear, especially. Can you still hear it? Oh yeah, it it's happening while we're talking now. It's a high pitched um, ring in your ear, and um, yeah. And, and the sound like uh, like cicadas. That's what the best I can describe it. Mm, God, how annoying! All right, so so the bomb goes off. Um, what happens next? Well, as soon as we went through those glass doors, I mean, I could see through the glass doors, and all I could see was pandemonium outside. Uh, out the front, there was there was people in absolute. Um, shock and just standing around wondering what's going on. Others were screaming and I'm talking hundreds of people because all the windows, the glass had blown out of the windows and there were large glass windows all the way around the shop on that corner and all of that blew out and uh, people had, and I did notice a couple of people that had minor, minor cuts on their face and arms um, but there was nobody actually on the ground as such. There was a couple of people sitting, but not actually like injured enough to be laying on the ground. And so what did you do next? I was standing on the footpath, just trying to assess the situation. And then at the same time, I thought, we don't know if there's another one going to go off. So um, what I did do first up was start herding everybody away from the front of the store and trying to get them to other parts of the intersection. I don't know how you've functioned like that after you. I mean, you'd just been blown up. It's it, To be quite honest, all I had was deafness. Um, and while I was directing traffic, I, I had a, a very senior police officer come through and he pulled up in his car next to me and he said, are you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just doing what I'm doing. And he said, well, you're staggering all over the place. And I, I didn't even know that. I was just, I had my mind set on getting the job done and I didn't realise that I was actually uh, more than likely had a, um, had a concussion of some sort, but I just didn't, it just didn't fit with what I had to do. Right. And, and so how did the day end? Uh, the rest of the day uh, was, I was taken by ambulance to Sydney Hospital and um, got assessed there for a number of hours. Uh, made a few phone calls home because I my our Christ, family Christmas party was on that afternoon and uh, I wasn't going to be there. 
I think if it was me, I'd have had, I'd have probably had some kind of breakdown. Like, I don't know, um, like after I got home and, and the adrenaline ran out. Oh, I did. On When I got home, which was very late on that uh, Christmas Eve, I, I sat down and I cracked a beer and and I just sat there and I didn't want to talk to anybody. All I wanted to do was think about what had just happened and how lucky I was. Were you angry? Yeah, yeah. And it's um, it, how anybody could do anything malicious like this um, on Christmas Eve is just beyond belief. Yeah, because this was, I mean, this was a bomb set up in a kid's section on Christmas Eve. Oh, well, it's disgusting. Um, and I personally, um, <laughs> I, I just really hoped that when these people were caught, that they were well and truly penalised for it. We're going to leave Alan Duncan here for a moment. We'll come back to him at the end of the at the end of the show, but we're just going to cut to an ad break. Um, after the ads, stick around because we're going to get stuck into the police investigation. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, so welcome back. We just heard from a police officer who was in the middle of the blast. And we'll, we'll come back to Alan, but right now we're going to actually talk to someone else. Uh, we don't usually do that on this show. We, we just talk to one person at a time. But, but today, you're going to hear from two people. 
We're going to hear from Michael Adams, who's a fellow podcaster. And Michael actually did a multi-part deep dive into the Woolworths Bombers for his show. Uh, It's an amazing show, by the way. It's called Forgotten Australia. You should have a listen. Um, And there's probably no one who knows more about the police investigation on this case than Michael Adams. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Julian. So, three bombs have gone off around New South Wales. What's the police response? Well, they've got uh, eyewitnesses who have seen a man uh, leaving the sort of uh, subterranean George Street uh, town hall train station entrance in a hurry uh, just before the explosion. A Woolworths employee has seen a similar looking man who's been sort of, you know, acting suspiciously in the toy department in sort of in the, you know, hour or so leading up to the bombing. So they've got sort of these um, eyewitnesses giving accounts of these guys who was acting suspiciously. So within a couple of days, they had photo kit IDs of the men they were looking for. But, you know, it's 1980. There aren't surveillance cameras. The photo kit, uh, the photo kits look pretty uh, bizarre. Um, and <laughs> some of the contra- some of the uh, witnesses, you know, uh, descriptions of the men are, are a bit contradictory. So they are at a loss. Their very best lead is going to be when the bomber makes contact again. This is what they need. They need the bomber to actually be in contact. They need to string it out. They need to get as much information about the bomber or bombers as they can while this process of extortion goes ahead. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so they've got a couple of IDs on suspicious looking people who were loitering around uh, George Street on the day of the explosion. And they're hanging out. They're waiting for another phone call or another letter or something. Uh, when When... When does it come through and what happens? It comes through a few days after the town hall bombing. Uh, the caller says, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get a Woolworths security man. This is the man you're going to use. He named the actual guy um, and he's going to dress in a boiler suit. He's going to carry the get the, get the uh, ransom together and then he'll get more instructions. The police had anticipated this and that actually uh, ordered this guy to go on holidays. So they actually had their own man who'd been put onto the Woolworths uh, rosters and schedule as a Woolworths employee. And they said, can we use this security guy instead? And the bomber agreed to this. So this was an undercover police officer who would, you know, take the ransom. And when that, that day began... The police had, you know, follow cars doing rotations behind. They had, you know, the uh, helicopters up, although it was raining that day, so that that's aerial surveillance wasn't what they'd hoped. They had uh, the airlines staked out. They had the railways staked out. They had boats on the harbour. It was the biggest stakeout in New South Wales history, and they were following this, you know, guy in a boiler suit who was wearing a boiler suit and a, a business shirt and a red tie. So he would really stand out like proverbial dog's balls wherever he went. <laughs> so, you know, the, the bomber directed him to a pub in the Western, in Western Sydney. When he got there, there was a phone call directing him back to a pub in Double Bay. He got there. You know, there were police getting there ahead of this guy. So they were observing other people in the bar to see if anyone was acting suspiciously. And they did see a guy in the bar at Double Bay who had you know a bushy beard and was carrying a sports bag and they kind of clocked him because he was acting a little oddly anyway the courier was then directed across the harbour to a pub in Mossman and then as you know it was getting towards sunset down to Mossman near Taronga Park 
uh, where he was um, near the zoo, where he was instructed to reach into a, a gap in a wall and pull out a device. And it's like, you know, that's some pretty scary shit when you're dealing with bombers. And he puts yeah. his hand and he pulls out a, t- a walkie-talkie. And the, this this bomber, who is not the guy with the Italian accent, is now directing him to uh, go to the end of the wharf, attach the ransom, to, you know, which is in a kookaburra sports bag that the, the bombers have specified, attach it to a rope that's already been attached to the wharf and lower it into the water, which he does. But he doesn't cut the bag. He doesn't cut the rope. He leaves it hanging there. Um, and then he retreats. Hey, it's me just jumping in. So let's pause on this image here for a moment. So we've got this bag and it's full of cash and gold and diamonds. And the undercover cop wearing the boiler suit has just thrown it into the harbour. And it's a pretty clever move on behalf of the bombers because because now the police don't have a direct line of sight on it. And the cops know this and they're, and they're not happy about it at all. So Michael tells me that they moved in all sorts of people who were undercover um, just to keep an eye on the water. Other police who are in the area un- uh, undercover, posing as fishermen and as people dating, are sort of just milling around, you know, pretending to fish, pretending to be picnickers or whatever as the sun sets. And they're watching for hours to see what happens. Um, you know, a, a police scuba diver swims up and in- examines the bag. It's there. It's just suspended in the water. Nothing's happening. And, you know, hours pass. And then at like two in the morning, cops who are you know f- fishing inverted commas off the end of the off the end of the pier feel a tug on their line which is you know intersecting with the rope and all of a sudden they see a scuba diver and uh the cops you know go oh mate you, you know you scared the shit out of me uh, and then kind of retreats down the wharf tells his mates they run up they pull their revolvers the guy hasn't ducked back under the surface they tell him to freeze and he does i mean at that point this scuba diver could have actually taken a dive and tried to get away, but he actually freezes, and they catch him, and uh, he's taken in. Um, it's you know, it's the thing is though, the police's plan has been to catch the big fish, not the minnow. They are anticipating that the guy who's going to be collecting this bag is not the mastermind. Um, what their plan actually is is to let him get away with the money, follow him to the mastermind. But in this, you know tense moment obviously if they let this guy get under the under the surface of the water with the bag there's a good chance he's going to get away entirely with a million dollars and you know a million dollars in 1980 is worth about six and a half million dollars today uh so a lot of money uh it would have been a major embarrassment had this guy got away so they caught him brought him in for questioning quickly established that his name was greg mccarty greg mccarty Remember that name? Greg is one of our two bombers in this story. And he's this kind of curly-haired, scruffy-bearded Queenslander who was, well, he wasn't exactly a criminal mastermind. But as Michael tells me, the cops investigated where he'd got his scuba gear from. And this yielded some interesting results. They trace it to a dive store in the eastern suburbs, which was burgled relatively recently. And they they trace another piece of equipment back to a dive store on the south coast at Huskisson near Jarvis Bay. And uh, their inquiries there over the next two weeks lead them to uh, understand that this guy, Greg McHardy, has been living down at Huskisson and he's been sharing a flat or a house, sort of a party house, with a guy called Larry Danielson. Uh, and Larry Danielson used to work at the surf store there Uh, the dive store there, which was also broken into a few months earlier. Gear was taken, scuba gear, and they've matched this scuba gear putatively to the gear that 
Greg McCarty has been has been busted wearing. Okay. Uh, so they eventually uh, arrest uh, Larry Danielson, bring him in for questioning. They search his house and they find um, some duct tape. And when they went through the wreckage of the Woolly store in Town Hall, in the second, in the first store, first floor men's bathroom, they found duct tape that had apparently been used to strap the device, and they could match this duct tape exactly to this duct tape they found in Larry Danielson's house. Wow. Um, under questioning, then they're then looking at these guys' movements at the relevant times in terms of the bombings of the two Woolworth stores and the Woolworth store on at ta- Christmas Eve in Town Hall. And, you know, they, these guys cannot satisfactorily account for their movements. So they have a fair bit of circumstantial evidence uh, and they prosecute accordingly. Wow. There's lots there that I want to unpack. So the explosives had had been stolen. Yep. Uh, tell me about that. So there was a theft at this uh, quarry at Dunmore. I think it was in... October of 1980, so a couple of months before the bombings. A couple of months, yeah. I think it was in the vicinity of 150 kilo- kilograms of gelignite, so a lot of explosives, Damn. a lot of explosives stolen. Um, the person who stole it had actually stolen a ute, packed, the, uh, cut, cut a hole through the wall of the uh, s- the storage area where the gelignite was kept, uh, loaded all of this explosive into the ute, driven this ute through a fence, and then the ute had been found abandoned on the Princess Highway a couple of k's away. Michael went on to explain that the cops never actually found all this gelignite at Larry's house, but there were a few other technical details that connected him. And then I asked Michael to describe Larry, because really, Larry is the star of this story. Larry was a musician. Larry had been a uh, musician since the 60s. In uh, wow. He'd lived in Papua New Guinea where he'd actually been a pop singer and had released an album, which you can listen to on YouTube. It's called Travelin' Music. It's quite What's funny. It? What's it like? Is it good? It, it's, uh, what would we say, incredibly un-PC, uh, Aussie bloke music about being a expat living in PNG. It's From kind of you seventies. Know, <laughs> yeah, it's good natured, but it's it's not particularly PC. But you okay. can hear he's having a really good time. The, it's recorded live. The audience are loving it. Um, so you know, Larry was a a, a real sort of um, bon vivant, an entertainer. He was actually playing gigs around the south coast at the time of these bombings. So you know, he was transporting his gear to various pubs and clubs. Uh, from 1977 to 1980, he ran a nightclub called Flicks in Manly. Now, Flicks at this time was uh, on par with Selena's as the live music venue in Sydney. Uh, it, how it, it could seat about, or it could hold about 2,000 people. Wow. Uh, Larry had uh, bands such as Midnight Oil, The Angels, Cold Chisel, you name it, they played there. And, you know, you'd often see these bands all playing there in the space of a week. You could go there and see the best Australian rock bands as they were coming up through the pub rock scene at Larry's at Larry's venue. And he was also very loosey-goosey with uh, ID, so it was a great venue for underage drinkers. So um, so just to so hold on, just yeah, to summarize that. I know, the there's guy, a lot the guy, the guy who, who masterminded the Woolworths bombings, yeah. Uh, he also ran a nightclub <laughs> that, that hosted some of the, Australia's biggest bands. At the time, they were coming up. So, you know, um, there's an interview in the AB, on the ABC from about 2012 with Rob Hurst of Midnight Oil where he mentions 
seeing Larry is this, you know, this guy who was, you know, always wearing these batik t-shirts and, you know, was kind of, you know, always really chummy with the bands and all the rest of it. He was kind of basking in the reflected glow. I mean, you know, yeah. people like Marsha Hines would, would, you know, be there partying with him. It was, you know, a real kind of um, groovy venue for him. And, you know, the only way he was able to pull this off was because he was paying off the cops. Um, he had actually got the place under a dodgy club's license. Um, the cops obviously knew this. He was, um, you know, when I started doing this podcast, it was a 10-part podcast. After I released the first part, a guy I worked with in television, a cameraman called Andre Evis, got in touch with me and say, Hi. he said, hey, I knew, I knew these guys. I knew one of these wow. guys. And I was like, I obviously thought it was Greg McCarty because he was younger, but it turned out it was Larry. So Andre, when he was 10 years old, had lived in a flat opposite Larry Danielson. And Larry had actually employed him at the age of 10 to serve drinks in this club during the daytime. So this kid is carrying around trays of VB to cops in uniform, cops, plainclothes cops who are coming in to pick up their payoffs from Larry to allow him to operate this business. God. What a time to be alive. I mean, it's I just, it just sounds so loosey-goosey and, and laissez-faire. Everyone, um, just this like Australian larrikin culture of the late 70s, early 80s. It's, yeah. I mean, even just the fact that they're able to steal 150 kilograms of gelignite from a, from a construction site yeah. without too much trouble. I mean, you just you couldn't do that these days. Uh, let's, let's talk about our main characters. So we've established that Larry was a was a musician and I don't know he seems like a pretty fun guy to have a beer with tell <laughs> me about tell me about Greg what, what do we know about him he was pretty much the same like I've spoken to people who knew them independently and people who knew them both like the young guy the, the kid who's now a man who I told you about he'd gone out on fishing with both of them when he was like 10 years old or whatever and just said they were really good guys um, in the course of the podcast I spoke to maybe half a dozen people who'd known them and they both said they were really good fun to be around. Like, you know, Larry was the life of the party, always with a beer and a yarn. I, like I said, you know, his his house, um, which is now a gift shop in Huskisson, uh, was called Tumble Down Dicks. And it was known as just a place where people would go and, you know, they'd, there'd always be a meal, there'd be a couch to sleep on. It was kind of, you know, it wasn't a halfway house, but people sort of wandered in and wandered out. Um, and he, you know, he, he gave McCarty a, uh, a cot on the, on the veranda when he was, you know, short of a place to stay and then eventually his own bedroom. Um, McCarty had been a promising footballer up in uh, Northern Queensland in the late sixties. Um, he'd gotten into a bit of a tr bit of trouble over a car theft beef as a juvenile. He'd, uh, actually worked as an assistant manager at a Woolies uh, briefly. He'd joined the army. He'd deserted the army because he'd gotten a girl pregnant. Uh, he'd been on the run for a while. He'd eventually given himself up and been court-martialed. Um, he'd gotten into um, a few scrapes here and there. In the mid-70s, he'd worked at the pub, at a pub in Sydney that was supposedly used as a sort of, you know, a, a hub for heroin trafficking out of Southeast Asia. Um, mm. But yeah, again... Um, McCarty was he was a good-looking guy. He liked to drink. He liked smoking pot. He was very popular with the ladies. Um, he had married and uh, separated from his wife. They had a kid. He'd also uh, had you know gotten this girl pregnant while he was in the army. And um, I don't know if we want to skip ahead a little bit here, but after they were convicted, uh, well, sorry, 
After they were committed to trial and were being held in remand in 1982, McCarty escaped from Parramatta Jail and went on the run for six months, disappeared. Mm. Tell um, me about that. Was, How did he get out? He got out in a garbage truck. Um, <laughs> I know, right? Classy. Classy. <laughs> and then he uh, climbed out of the muck at the tip and then he carjacked a woman and took off. Now, like when Larry Danielson was arrested, uh, he was all over the news, photographed in the newspapers, TV cameras in his face. He's there wearing his one of his loud shirts, very distinctive. Whenever you see pictures of McHardy after he was arrested, he's always doing that thing that you know smart crooks do, covering his face with whatever's available, so they haven't got any recent footage or pictures of him. So, like, the police, after he actually escaped, they had these really old images of him, which they took them ages to actually publish. And when they did, they were, you know, him with a big bushy beard and bushy hair. It's like, wow, well, it's only, you know, a razor and a pair of scissors to completely Mm. change his look. Um, He vanished. He was gone. They had no idea where he was uh, until about six months later when he was caught in a raid on the Gold Coast, having worked in, in Queensland in pubs, um, he was actually pulling beers at a pub in Queensland, which was a cop pub. So he'd be there serving beers to a dozen cops just off shift as one of the most wanted men in Australia. And they had no idea. They had no idea. Or um, they were willing to turn uh, blind No, eye. I don't think they had any idea. Okay. Uh, so he was actually in the process of getting a fake passport and was, you know, pretty close to being able to get out of the country when he was nabbed. Uh, I think someone probably dobbed him in. It didn't seem like the police had much of a clue what was happening. And then all of a sudden they had him in this raid. Um, By this stage in 1982, Larry had already been convicted and sentenced to 20 years in jail. And so had Greg. Greg had been convicted in absentia. So all that was really... um, to remain was for him to come back and cop the same sentence. Okay, right. So what what happened after they were convicted and jailed? I mean, I know obviously their uh, their, their jail times were slightly staggered a bit, but uh, you know, I guess they got twenty years each. Twenty years each. Yeah. Uh, Larry served his time quietly. Greg was at the heart of another alleged escape attempt, um, which was foiled. Um, yeah. So I mean, they were going down for I think one. I think. Greg might have been sentenced to 27 years in total. One of them was, I'm not sure which, uh, but the seven-year bit was to be served concurrently. So effectively, they were both in for 20 years. Larry at this stage was about 50. Greg was about, off the top of my head, about 35. So they were going to be in until they were, you know, middle-aged or older. Mm. Uh, And then, lo and behold, in 1988, early release for both of them. They had served. They had what served happened? about a, a third of their sentences. Um, it was just the way it was done at the time. It was the, uh, uh, the there was a huge outcry about these two in particular being released early, um, but there was just a, a judicial system or a prison system at the time um, that was. Um, the remissions, the way they that they worked, meant that criminals often walked far far earlier than their sentences. Uh, this actually. I believe it was uh, incoming Premier Nick Greiner, or he was about to be elected, campaigned on this. He was absolutely disgusted that these two, who could easily have, you know, that b- bombing of Woolworths at Town Hall, if something had gone wrong, yeah. um, they, you know, could have led to dozens of people being killed, and a lot of them would have been kids because the bomb was in the toy department. So, I mean, it could have been, you know, one of the biggest mass casualty events in Australian history. Uh, 
there is evidence, there was evidence and suggestion at the time that they'd actually found amongst the wreckage uh, the remains of a uh, receiver. So while the other two bombs at Warilla uh, and Maitland had been, you know, just basically dropped into a sky vent and with a fuse and that they, they'd run. Here, it seemed that they'd actually had remote con- a remote control device so that they could be sure that, or as sure as possible, that the store was cleared before they actually detonated it. So they weren't. It would seem they weren't entirely reckless in 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 terms of uh, the potential for casualties. But you know, obviously, anything could have gone wrong and killed a lot of people. So there was outrage that they were being released. But mm. nevertheless, they were. Uh, Larry, as a New Zealand citizen, was deported. Uh, Greg just sort of melted back into the uh, into the Sydney scene. Yeah, yeah. It seems to me that there's two very distinct sets of facts about these guys. Like on the one hand, uh, you know, they're these fun-loving larrikins who who I don't know drink and play music and. Like they're the life of the party. Then on the other hand, they put a bomb in a toy section on Christmas Eve, which yep. is the it's the behavior of a cold blooded psychopath, really. Absolutely. So how do you how do you reconcile these two very different how, aspects? How do you? Does it sound how do does I? It sound, does it sound odd to you? Uh yeah, it sounds odd. I mean, yep. you say that in a way that suggests there's something sort of conspiratorial yeah, I, afoot. Yeah. Well, I, I don't I don't believe that they were the guys who came up with the plan. They might have placed the explosive. They might have they might have detonated the explosive. They may have just placed it. Um like John Hendry, who was the Woolies point man, he was the guy who was on the receiving end of those phone calls. His house was being watched by heli- police helicopters. He's, he felt like you know the 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 bombers had actually said you know we know Woolies organization we know who you are we know where you live we know what your families do do not mess with us or we will mess with you you don't know anything about us we know everything about you which is super sinister sort of stuff I mean mm. that could have been the sort of workings of an imagination like Larry's you know consume enough sort of you know crime movies from the 70s Dirty yeah, Harry and yeah, so yeah. forth and yeah. you could come up with that sort of stuff but John Hendry clearly did fear for his family at this point and he was dealing with these you know Mr Dunmore and then Mr Holden on the phone for you know a couple of weeks he was the point man you know John Hendry had been in the army in World War II and had been on top of Fort Denison as part of a gun crew when the Japanese miniature subs invaded Sydney Harbour. He'd been there and that actually fired their guns at the what they thought was the the Japanese sub as it tried to flee after bombing the the as after torpedoing torpedoing the ferry. So this guy was a tough mofo. His I interviewed his daughter and she said to me he was hardcore. He was no compromise. He was devoted to Woolworths to the point where if you ever, sh- you know, if a family member shopped at Coles, better you didn't mention it to Dad. He was <laughs> he was gung ho, seriously. Wow. And you know he, he he only died a couple of years back, and he was you know um, although he didn't participate in Anzac Day ceremonies for decades, eventually he did as the last living link to the attack on Sydney Harbour because he'd been there. So wow. if you look him up, John Hendry, Google, you'll see stories from Anzac Day over the past, you know, maybe three or four years ago. But, you know, he only, he only passed away, I think, in 2019 or 2020. Anyway, 2019, I think it was. Anyway, he testified. His evidence was, you know, crucial. 
He was the one who had actually been there when the telecom guy had set up the tape recorder. He'd pressed record on the tapes that then the voice experts matched, supposedly, or did match, I won't say supposedly, did match to Larry and to Greg. John Henry went to his grave believing that these two guys were guilty but were not behind it in terms of they were not the masterminds. So I don't think you can get any close. and his daughter told me that, so I don't think you can get any closer to the action than this man and he'd had, you know, he had most of the next 40 years to think about it. He'd faced off with the Japanese in World War II. He, you know, he'd been, he, he, was, he was the last person out of, apart from Alan, the policeman, he was the last person out of the building before the bombs went off. There's a photograph on the front page, I think, of the Sydney Morning Herald, and that's him hiding behind the uh, concrete entrance to the under, underground town hall station. He was there when the Japanese bombed Sydney in 1942 and when someone bombed Woolies in 1980, and he didn't believe that they were the masterminds. So I kind of take my lead from him, and I do think it's difficult to reconcile these two sort of fun-loving larrikins with people who are sophisticated and cold-blooded enough to pull something like this off. For Alan Duncan, whose hearing has never been the same, he says that he can't see any element of larrikinism about McCarty and Danielson. In fact, he says that he has actually been diagnosed later in life with PTSD from what happened at Woolies. Well, um, I have been diagnosed with PTSD. For instance, every New Year, um, when fireworks are going off, if I know they're going to happen, so if I'm standing there at, at a display and I can see somebody going over to light it or I know that it's about to happen, I'm prepared for it. But if I was, um, say, at a party and somebody, as a joke, lit a firecracker and set it off behind me, I'd go through the roof and be, and be a shaking mess too. So you don't see Danielson and McCarty as misunderstood larrikins. You just think they were, I don't know, like just straight up thugs? Oh, very much so. Um, that, that total disregard for people and... Not, not taking, having any care about what, who may be affected by it all, um, that really annoyed me. It's um, that's that's a horrible human being. Um, I think every every man, woman, and child knows the difference between right and wrong, and um, they they stepped over the mark. They went beyond larrikin to. The attempt to get money without any regard for other people and the injuries they they may cause other people is beyond belief. A big thanks to both of my guests today, former police officer Ellen Duncan and podcast host, author and all-round legend Michael Adams. I also just want to say that without Michael, I couldn't have made this episode. Check out his multi-part special on the Woolworths Bombers because it's way more detailed than what we had time for today. And just like me, he's got a Christmas episode coming out on his show. It's called The Christmas Murder, and it's about the brutal strangulation and battering of a young woman in Sydney on Christmas Day in 1952. 70 years ago this year. That's on Forgotten Australia, wherever you get podcasts. If you've enjoyed today's episode and you're thinking, hey, I've got a story that's uh, interesting, something that I think would work for this show, then please get in touch. 
Um, I love hearing feedback. I love hearing your story suggestions. So just hit me up. I am Julian Morgans on Instagram and Morgans Julian on Twitter. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Tuffery. It was edited and mixed by Jimmy Saunders, who also did our theme music. Our cover art is by Naomi Lee Beveridge. And this whole thing has been a super real production. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.